You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denver Wright, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, What Could Social Housing Look Like in Denver? by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, $6.4 million contract to fund encampment outreach passes City Council Committee, but not without concerns, by Desiree Matherin. And, Local nonprofits offer scholarships for post-secondary education in honor of Ma Kang, also by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Fire at Capitol Hill Apartments Leaves Residents Who Unionized Last Fall in Limbo, by Katie Cheshire. And, Colorado Polling Institute's Second Poll Looks at Denver School Board Election, by Benjamin Neufeld. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. What could social housing look like in Denver? By Robert Davis. Denver's lack of affordable housing has inspired creative solutions from safe outdoor spaces for the unhoused to co-housing for renters. Now, some local leaders are floating the idea of creating a social housing program in Denver to, as they say, provide some permanent relief from rising housing costs. District 8 Council Member Chantel Lewis introduced the idea during a Budget and Policy Committee meeting on August 7th when she proposed funding a study about creating a social housing program in Denver's 2024 budget. She said the idea was one she heard consistently while on the campaign trail. What I'm trying to get to is that we are taking a more comprehensive approach to how we are addressing the issues of housing and homelessness at the same time, Lewis said during the meeting. The term social housing can refer to many things, but New York University's Center on International Cooperation defines it as a model that prioritizes the social value of housing for communities over its ability to generate profits for a select few. These models can be subsidized by the government or run by not-for-profit entities. Social housing and public housing are often talked about synonymously, but they serve different purposes. Social housing differs from public housing in that it can serve both middle and low income households, whereas public housing is reserved for people earning the lowest incomes. Social housing units can be offered on the free market and frequently cap rents for tenants at 30% to 35% of their income. The economic blend of tenants and social housing development also allows for higher income tenants to effectively subsidize rents for lower income tenants. On the other hand, Public housing operators often require vouchers to access and rely on government reimbursements to manage their cash flow. Social housing is common in European countries like the Netherlands, where social housing units make up 29% of the overall housing stock, according to data from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. Austria, Denmark, and England also have robust social housing programs. Stateside, the idea is still relatively new. Seattle was one of the first U.S. cities to experiment with social housing when voters passed Initiative 135 in February. 
The initiative created a new development authority called the Seattle Social Housing Developer that is tasked with expanding the local public housing stock, but the entity's work has yet to begin. California legislators are also toying with the idea of creating a statewide social housing development authority. For example, Assembly Bill 309 would require the new development authority to build up to three social housing projects on excess state-owned land. Similarly, Senate Bill 555 and Senate Bill 584 would establish social housing development goals and levy additional fees and taxes against short-term rental properties to support social housing developments. Lewis told Denver Voice in an interview that she has pitched the idea of creating a social housing program to some city councilors as well as constituents who call her office to talk about housing issues. She added the response has been mixed, with some expressing reservations about the legality of Denver owning and operating real estate and the practical aspects of the program itself. The reality is that this type of housing impacts a lot more people than we are currently talking about, Lewis said. Councilwoman Sarah Parati, one of Denver's at-large representatives, told Denver Voice in an interview that she supports the idea of creating a social housing model in the city. Outside of capping rents, Parati said social housing could also provide renters with more legal protections against eviction because renters who live in municipally run social housing units would be able to assert their constitutional rights during a dispute. However, there is an open question regarding whether Denver can own and operate real estate at all. Both Lewis and Parati said that they believe Denver's ordinances allow the city to own and operate its own housing developments. Parati also said the city attorney's office disagrees with their perspective. I think the big question is whether we can convince people that social housing is worth the lift of cutting through all the complexity to make it happen, Parati told Denver Voice. We have such a large affordable housing shortage and that has become so urgent that solving the problem is viewed as an uphill climb by a lot of people. While discussions about social housing in Denver are preliminary, there seems to be some disagreement about how a social housing model would work in Denver. One key component of this model is what's known as democratic resident control, which essentially means that social housing tenants would form an association similar to a homeowners association. Shannon Hoffman, who advocated for social housing during her campaign for the District 10 seat on Denver City Council, said she would like social housing tenants to be required to serve on their tenants association as a way to promote a community dynamic within a building. She added that this idea is where her thinking diverges from other people she talked to about social housing. We need an innovative and creative solution to our housing crisis and we need affordable rents, Hoffman told Denver Voice in an interview. There's also the practical problem of creating a new social housing development entity outside of Denver Housing Authority and finding land to accommodate social housing developments. Hoffman said there has been talk about introducing a ballot initiative to create such an entity, but those discussions are preliminary as well. Land issues surrounding social housing may prove to be easier to navigate given Denver Mayor Mike Johnston's willingness to try innovative housing programs. For example, Johnston is working to fulfill his campaign promise to create micro-communities of tiny homes and shelters to help people escape homelessness. However, 
Land the city identified that could support such sites is primarily concentrated in historically underserved communities, Axios Denver reported. Lewis added that she's concerned about further concentrating poverty in places in Denver that have a lot of affordable housing already. Despite the disagreements, social housing supporters say the idea could help alleviate some of the pains caused by Denver's unaffordable housing market. As of July 2023, there were just 563 homes for sale in Denver, a decline of 39% since July of 2020, according to the Colorado Association of Realtors. Meanwhile, Denver's median home price in Denver County was $696,500, which represents an increase of nearly 30% over the last three years. Similarly, the Metro Denver Apartment Association measured the city's average rent at $1,870 in July, an increase of about 11% over three years. The average weekly wage in Denver, on the other hand, has only increased by 7.4% over the same time period, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows. Hoffman said that the city's affordable housing challenges are also straining the local community. Teachers, firefighters, and service industry workers all struggle to afford housing in Denver, and the city wouldn't function well without them. To that end, a social housing program in Denver could provide a safety net for workers who can't afford the cost of living, she said. We're getting to the point where we don't have much time left to sit back and think about this problem, Hoffman said. What we've been doing hasn't worked, and we need to find new solutions. These next two articles are from Denverite. $6.4 million contract to fund encampment outreach passes City Council Committee, but not without concerns, by Desiree Matherin. A plan to provide funding for outreach to Denver residents living in encampments and help them move into non-congregate shelters, bridge housing, or supporting housing cleared its first hurdle in City Council on Wednesday. The $6.4 million proposed contract would go toward starting one leg of the city's encampment response, dubbed Encampment Resolution Outreach. It's part of Mayor Mike Johnston's goal of housing at least 1,000 people by the end of the year. The proposed funding agreement is between the Department of Housing Stability and the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, but the funding itself would be given to the Coalition to the Home for the Homeless, which will perform the outreach. The St. Francis Center and Urban Peak will be subcontractors. The coalition will hire 21 additional staff, including a nurse, outreach workers, behavioral health navigators, case managers, and housing navigators. While the agreement was accepted by some members of the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee as an important step forward, other members were left with questions and feelings of unease. Through the agreement, the outreach team will be responsible for providing supportive services to those living in encampments. Those services include move-in assistance, making sure clients have all the necessary paperwork and documentation, landlord recruitment, connecting clients with behavioral and physical health services, enrolling clients into different programs such as subsidized housing or rent assistance. The purpose of the wide range of services is to make transitioning into housing as simple as possible. The coalition's target, in collaboration with the city, 
will be to ultimately move 1,080 people from encampments into housing, with a minimum goal of 90 people per quarter. Some council members are concerned about duplicative services. Councilwoman Amanda Sawyer pointed out that the services being proposed through this agreement are already provided by several organizations throughout the city, such as the Early Intervention Team and the Denver Street Outreach Collaborative and Strategic Outreach to Large Encampments programs, both of which are partially run by the Coalition for the Homeless. We have already dumped significant amounts of money into this exact same thing, Sawyer said. Why are we not utilizing the resources we already have and the structures we already have in place instead of adding new money to a new contract to do this? Why are we continuing to have this fragmented silo system where we have multiple agencies and multiple teams doing multiple things for the same purpose? She noted that the contract may be the right way to go about addressing encampments, but having the other programs along with this proposed contract doesn't make financial sense. Cole Chandler, Mayor Mike Johnston's senior advisor for homelessness resolution, slightly agreed with Sawyer. He said that homelessness resolution team is looking into the various programs that address outreach and assistance measures, but he noted that this specific program is different from the others. The reality of this particular contract is that it's focused on encampment resolution and leveraging available resources around an encampment to surround the folks there and help them move into housing, Chandler said. That is not a way that we've approached encampments in the past. Using this approach brings a heightened focus to closing the encampments and allows the team to determine whether the other programs have been effective and efficient, he added. This could become the central piece in the way we engage encampments moving forward into the long term, and then there's a chance to reorient around that, Chandler said. This approach of going encampment by encampment and being able to surround those encampments and ultimately resolve them is something that we need to bring forward at this time. Other council members raised concerns about staff hiring and effects on businesses. Council member Chantel Lewis questioned the coalition's current workload and council member Sarah Parati questioned how much of the proposed funding would go towards staff salaries. There were several other concerns that didn't necessarily pertain to the proposed contract. Sawyer and Council Member Daryl Watson noted that many local businesses in their districts have said they're suffering financially because of encampments. Both mentioned the urgency expressed by business owners in having the encampments removed quickly so customers feel safer and have easy access to their establishments. Sawyer wondered if funding could be diverted to business owners experiencing hardships because of the encampments in the same way the city provides financial assistance to businesses during periods of construction. Chandler said that funding is something the task force would look into. At the end, the proposal passed through the committee with Sawyer and Watson voting no. The proposal will make its way to full council in the upcoming weeks. Meanwhile, with a unanimous yes vote, the committee also passed a grant agreement between HOST and the Denver Housing Authority. The grant for $15,700,000 would go toward repaying a bridge loan DHA received to purchase the Best Western Central Park at 4595 Quebec Street. The funding will come from the American Rescue Plan Act. The hotel will eventually be converted into permanent supportive housing, 
but for the next three years it'll act as a non-congregate shelter run by the Salvation Army. When the building is converted into permanent supportive housing, at least 40% of the units will be dedicated to tenants who make 30% of the area median income, or less than $24,650 for an individual and $35,150 for a family of four. This proposal will also head to full council in the upcoming weeks. Local nonprofits offer scholarships for post-secondary education in honor of Ma Kang by Desiree Matherin. It's been over a year since community leader Ma Kang died. In July of 2022, Kang was killed outside her home in East Colfax by stray bullets shot from nearby New Freedom Park. She was the owner of a Burmese restaurant known in the community for her work giving back. Since Kang was killed, four men were arrested and charged in her death. Denver police installed more lights and surveillance cameras in the neighborhood, and Verizon said they would update their 911 call routing system so no one will have to struggle to get in touch with the right police department again. Also since Kang's passing, a coalition of nonprofits started a scholarship fund to assist first and second generation immigrants with paying for higher education or trade skills. The Ma Kang Scholarship Fund was established by the Refugee Action Coalition of Colorado, which includes the International Rescue Committee in Denver, Lutheran Family Services Rocky Mountains, and the Spring Institute for Intercultural Learning. The coalition has traditionally assisted the refugee and immigrant community with a range of advocacy work and services that include adult education classes. Those classes also include high school equivalency preparation and career coaching, said Paula Schreifer, Spring Institute's president and CEO. But the coalition wanted to expand their offerings. So they applied for a grant to help people in the community who want to extend their educations. I think it was only $4,000 to provide little scholarships for refugees and immigrants who are interested in getting a post-secondary education, Schreifer said. They're not huge pots of money, but they're things that can definitely help individuals who otherwise would just be taking that on as debt. It can help for pay for rent. It can help pay for books. It can help pay for tuition. Schreifer said while the coalition was working on the mini scholarship, Kang's death highlighted the numerous issues plaguing East Colfax. It also brought to life who Kang was, a community leader and immigrant who shared her wealth with others. Schreifer said the coalition wanted to name the scholarship after Kang and reached out to her family for their permission. Once the scholarship was announced, Schreifer said an email blast was sent out to a bunch of nonprofit organizations and it reached the inbox of Kyle Clark, 9 News. Clark hosts a Word of Thanks segment, which is all about micro giving to nonprofits. Clark mentioned the scholarship on the show. And Schreifer said that that initial $4,000 grew into almost $30,000. Last year, 22 people received a scholarship and pursued a slew of career opportunities. One person went to a technical school to get a certificate as a mechanic. Another is pursuing an advanced degree to become a neurosurgeon. The goal of the scholarship wasn't to limit where recipients can go to school or what they can major in because everyone's trajectory is different, Schreifer said. I think things have really shifted in the U.S. as colleges and universities have become so expensive 
And I think people have recognized that that closes itself off as an opportunity for so many people, Schreifer said. We don't want to make those choices for people. As long as somebody's going into something that's meaningful to them, that's going to allow them to live a full, successful life, support themselves, support their families, we want to encourage that. This will be the second year the coalition is offering the scholarship. This is also the second year they've partnered with Clark. They've raised over $11,000 as of September 8th and are still accepting donations, which, which can be done through the Spring Institute's website. Schreifer said so far they've received about 33 applications. The deadline is September 22nd. To qualify, applicants must be at least 17 years old and either enrolled in or accepted into a post-secondary educational or training program. Applicants must be members of the immigrant and refugee community, either first or second generation. They must live in Colorado and intend to go to school in Colorado. And lastly, the recipients must commit to staying in touch with the organizations to provide occasional updates. Schreifer said anyone who needs assistance can reach out to the Spring Institute. The coalition's goal is about support, just like Kang supported her community. For the foreseeable future, we'll keep it going and we'll keep it focused on these scholarships for post-secondary education, Schreifer said, citing the growing expense of higher education and how inaccessible that it is to many immigrants and refugees. We know that any post-secondary education is really critical for people to do well economically in today's economy, so we really want to encourage choice, she said. The following articles are from Westward. Fire at Capitol Hill Apartments leaves residents who unionized last fall in limbo by Katie Cheshire. A fire at the Capitol Hill Apartments earlier this month forced all of its residents out with no timeline for when the Section 8 building at 701 East 14th Avenue might be cleared for reentry, leaving many people without belongings or any sense of help from property management. We were told to get what you need for the next couple of days, said tenant Scott Blevins, who has lived at the building for nearly eight years. A lot of people are beating themselves up about not grabbing more at this point. I haven't been directly contacted by management, he tells Westward. They did leave a note on my door at the hotel, but some people are already talking that they've applied for housing and that they're moving, and then some people said that they're staying, and I don't know what to believe. The blaze tore through the complex on the afternoon of September 7th, with residents having to move quickly. I woke up, and I barely got dressed and grabbed my phone, and I opened the door, and it was full of smoke, Blevins recalls. I know it happened, but it still doesn't seem 100% real. After, after the Denver Fire Department extinguished the blaze, tenants were allowed in to grab a few things, but most didn't expect it would be this long until they were able to return. Blevins says he didn't consider the changing weather and didn't even grab a jacket for chilly fall mornings. According to Blevins, Availed Property Management has not been responsive when asked about a timeline for moving back in or about the possibility of stopping by to pick up a few more items. This follows the pattern he's experienced in his time living at the Capitol Hill Apartments, he says. The entire property includes nine buildings, but the one at 701 East 14th unionized last November to try to hold Avail accountable for a range of issues, including a lack of security and failure to communicate with residents about maintenance issues. 
The Capitol Hill Apartments Tenants Association became the first Denver chapter of Denver Aurora Tenants United, which advocates for housing dignity across the metro area. At first, we had a lady that was really working with us, Blevins says, of Avail's response to the community unionizing. However, that person no longer works there, and Blevins claims the same old issues have persisted, despite marginal improvement. There's still a communication problem, but it's better than it was, he says. We continue to have problems with people getting in the building that shouldn't have been. There were cameras torn down, and I feel that should have been replaced very quickly that weren't. In the original letter the union sent to management last fall, it identified problems with the building's electrical circuit, including an unlocked switch box that allowed access to anyone and lacked security. It has always been a problem, Blevins says. We have neighbors that we have to go run and flip the breaker for every day because it just pops and then they have no power in their unit. The electrical system caused the fire, according to the Denver Fire Department report on the incident, which Westward obtained through a Colorado Open Records Act request. Upon investigation, it was determined that there was an electrical panel in the first floor hallway that was short-circuiting and sending sparks to the surrounding area, the report says. Smoke conditions worsened and further investigation revealed a fire burning inside of the electrical panel and behind the wall adjacent to the panel. The official cause of the fire was confirmed as a malfunction of the electrical panel equipment. After being evacuated, residents headed to the American Red Cross, which has helped them find places to stay at hotels. Blevins says the Red Cross has been helpful and communicative in a way that building management hasn't. Communication among residents had been made harder by the fact that they aren't all in the same hotel, or even in the same city. Blevins is at a hotel in Centennial. Others were sent to Lakewood. Several were sent to Thornton. Being scattered across the metro area has been difficult for many, as their lives were centered around the Cap Hill area. Blevins, for example, has had to find a way to get downtown in order to see his doctor and replace certain medications he left behind in a hurry after the blaze. While the community is strong, it's been tricky to coordinate who has what information and to support each other. Personally, my closest friends are not at the hotel I'm at, and that's been a little hard, Blevins says. My go-to people are on the other side of town. Avail is part of a national company known as PK Management outside of Colorado. Christopher Baca, Senior Director of Community Development for PK Management, says the company sends its condolences to the displaced residents. The Red Cross and our Community Development and Social Services team are working with the households one-on-one and connecting them to donations and other community resources throughout the Denver metro area, Baca says. The Red Cross is also providing residents with monetary donations to assist in the interim. According to Baca, it is still not safe for residents to return to their homes, and the company does not have a timeline for when they might be able to. Once clearance is issued, every unit will be notified when they are able to enter the unit to gather belongings, he added. Management is also working with residents to find alternate housing throughout the Denver area. Baca says PK Management will work with each family to find suitable alternate housing and that those with questions should reach out to the company directly. 
According to the DFD report, there is an estimated $150,000 in property losses and $50,000 in content losses. The building is covered by Section 8 housing, which is overseen by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. According to Angelo DiMaccio of Rocky Mountain HUD, property management is responsible for providing temporary relocation that meets a minimum of basic needs. He adds, for tenants who are displaced for a longer period of time due to the situation and repairs necessary, the owner or agent is required to provide each household with alternate housing. HUD works with the owner to process subsidy pass-through requests to support this effort. During this displacement, HUD requires the owner agent to provide updates on the process and locations of all tenants. In this instance, HUD will conduct a site visit at the property following the repairs. According to the Denver Housing Authority, if the property is eventually deemed uninhabitable, residents will immediately be issued another voucher. While management works on repairs, Blevins says he and his neighbors are figuring out what to do. After the union had successfully marginally improved the management situation, they went from meeting weekly to more occasional meetings and hadn't had one recently. Although they're spread out now, their current situation has spurred them to try to work together again. We're scrambling to try to get everybody back together, Blevins says. Being at different buildings and everybody having different information is really making it difficult to be one united group. Colorado Polling Institute's second poll looks at Denver School Board election by Benjamin Neufeld. The Colorado Polling Institute released a second survey late last month that takes a look at the status of the upcoming Denver Public Schools Board of Education election. But as with CPI's first poll, its usefulness is questionable. Three seats will be on the November 7th school board ballot, including the District 1 seat currently held by Scott, Scott Balderman and the District 5 seat held by Charmaine Lindsay. Both are running for re-election. But the most watched race is the one for the at-large seat currently held by Ante Anderson, who dropped out of the race for re-election to pursue a seat in the state legislature. Current candidates to replace Anderson include former mayoral candidate and tattered covered CEO Kwame Spearman, former East High School principal John Youngquist, security consultant Paul Ballinger, and Anderson-endorsed Brittany Johnson. The CPI poll puts Youngquist at the head of the pack, an early accolade the candidate eagerly held up in an email sent out to supporters that read, Friends, I am happy to share the news that I came in first place in the first public poll of the race released by the Colorado Public Polling Institute today. We have double the amount of support of the next closest remaining candidate in the race. But a look at the poll data shows that only 4.8% of people surveyed said they would vote for Youngquist if the election were held today. A little over 87% of respondents were still undecided. Addressing that in his email, the candidate said, There is still a large amount of remaining undecided voters, so please make a donation today to keep our momentum going. Also, please reshare the poll with your social networks. Youngquist tells Westward that he's excited about the poll despite the large number of undecideds, saying he wasn't surprised by the result. At the very least, he thinks the poll will help raise awareness about the election. 
He's confident that as the race goes on, the public is going to see a lot of Jungquist signs out there. The second place candidate on the poll was Ulka Joshi Hansen, with support from 4.5% of people surveyed. However, Hansen dropped out of the race on August 29th, citing a lack of soft side support or funding from large outside groups. Next is Spearman, with support from 2.3% of the poll's respondents, but he isn't worried about the results. If you looked at that poll and had any other conclusion than 87% of people don't know who they're going to vote for, I don't think you know how to read polling data, he says. This was totally unexpected, Spearman adds. We are asking voters to vote on three separate occasions in a non-federal election year. Three times in a year is a lot, and we literally just inaugurated a new mayor. But he thinks people will be more tuned in to the school board race by October. Besides the fact that the highlight of the poll is the percentage of undecided voters, there are other questionable elements in the CPI survey. First, it was dated very soon after it came out. Hansen had dropped out of the race by the time the poll was published, and Johnson didn't announce her campaign until September 5th, almost a week after it was released. Then, of the 414 people who participated in the poll, only 78 are parents of K-12 students, and only 48 of those students are actually in the DPS system. This snapshot of the board election comes in the wake of CPI's first poll, which asked over 400 residents whether they thought Denver was headed in the right direction. The results, which came out on August 23rd, revealed a clean split, with 44% answering in the affirmative and 44% saying they thought the city was going down the wrong path. CPI says its mission is to help inform decision-making through trustworthy, nonpartisan public opinion research, according to the group's senior advisor, Curtis Hubbard, but the question of who is funding the new organization has yet to be answered, as the Institute has not disclosed the identities of its donors. Representatives for CPI could not be reached for comment. Despite most participants in the second poll having little personal stake in the direction of DPS, school safety was one of their top priorities. It was a top priority for 48.5% of respondents, second only to recruiting and retaining good teachers, which 49.3% said was more important. Nearly 63% of respondents said they supported the reintroduction of school resource officers to DPS earlier, earlier this year after they were moved by the current board in the summer of 2020. The move came after a student shot and injured two deans at East High School. A little under 23% of people who took the CPI poll said they opposed the reintroduction of SROs. Spearman, who entered the school board race on May 8th with a focus on safety, says he would like to remove SROs from DPS again at some point in the next few years. I thought a lot about SROs and how they're playing out in our schools. I think today we definitely need them in our schools, Spearman says. However, I believe that we should strive in the next few years to create safety metrics in which we do not need police officers in our schools. I believe that we can get there as a community, and it's actually something that we should strive for. I think what was unfortunate about what happened over the past few years is we removed SROs without any alternative, and that was obviously not the right answer. Denver Cop Honored for Buying Woman a Plane Ticket to Escape Domestic Violence 
by Chris Perez. When Victoria Oliver became a Denver police officer, her main goal was to help people. It's what we're supposed to do, she says, while speaking with Westward at a Citizens Appreciate Police Awards ceremony on Wednesday, September 13th. But the Denver native and 27-year veteran of the Denver Police Department has done much more than that. In February, Oliver spent $255 of her own money on a plane ticket out of Colorado for a 23-year-old domestic violence victim who had been getting battered and verbally abused for a period of three weeks to the point where she had a miscarriage. Victoria, you're my angel, the woman later wrote in a text message to the officer. I love you. Oliver, who was honored at the ceremony with a CAP award for her actions, had been tasked with picking up the victim from a hotel and taking her to Denver International Airport after another officer made contact with her at DIA a day earlier. Detective Cox was working off-duty on a curb, and the victim jumped out of a car and advised what was going on, Oliver recalls. She was in the car with her boyfriend. There was a big fight. And when she saw Detective Cox, she just jumped out and said, Help! According to Oliver, Cox works in the DPD's domestic violence unit and was able to get the victim a hotel for the night, as the woman had scheduled a flight for the next day. When Oliver arrived at the hotel to pick up the woman the following day, she was with two people who said they were her friends and in good spirits. You could tell she was a little anxious, but I at least hope myself and my partner said her at ease, Oliver said. We got to the airport and we went to Frontier so that she could get her ticket, and they had no record of it. But that wasn't the only hiccup. We were trying to get that situated, and we were trying to reach the victim advocate. We were unable to do it, and you could see the victim was becoming very agitated, very fearful of male presence. And she was just shaking and just saying, oh, okay, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. That's when Oliver took matters into her own hands. I took it upon myself, and I said, I'm just going to get her ticket, she says. I said, let's not worry. I want to get her back to her hotel. And I paid for her ticket, and I took her back to her hotel. Once we got back there, she was still kind of anxious. I gave her some money so she could get some food and just told her, get some rest. You'll be flying back to Chicago tomorrow, and we'll be fine. The next day, Oliver responded back to work and got back to her regular assignments, with the first being an escort handed down by her sergeant. The person? Her domestic violence victim from DIA. I had no idea it was her, Oliver says. I respond to the terminal, and she jumps out the car, and she goes, Victoria! And her friend, she's like, that's her! That's the officer that helped! And we just hugged, and we were just at each other's side for the rest of the day. Oliver not only got the victim through TSA security, but she also managed to get the two friends who were with her through as well. It turns out that those friends were actually paramedics who had previously treated and helped the woman. They were just incredible, Oliver says. They didn't want their names out there because they called in sick to help her. And so I got all of us through TSA security, special passes for the two friends because they weren't flying, and then we got to the frontier gate, I talked to Frontier. I said, hey, I have a serious situation going on here. If we can, let's get her on first. And we were able to go onto the plane with her and say our goodbyes. And as we were saying our goodbyes, other people were coming on and we were all crying. 
Over the span of those two days, Oliver says the woman opened up to her. She had been through such an ordeal, and just listening to her life story, it was just, she needed this, and she didn't need any more pushback from what was going on, Oliver explains, and I was just honored and humbled to be a part of all that. When it comes to domestic, domestic violence cases, many victims are in need of a support system to get away from the person hurting them. What can make things hard, though, is when a person is afraid of going to the authorities or feels a certain way about them. In this case, Oliver said the woman had some opinions about police that they talked about in depth. I'm like, not all cops are bad, Oliver recalls telling her. We had those kinds of conversations. But she was such a sweet young lady who was just a victim of circumstances throughout her life. She was such a sweetheart. Before getting on her flight to Illinois, where she's originally from, the victim told Oliver one last thing, I love you, and thank you. It was the last time they saw each other. Asked about what she would say to the woman if Oliver was ever to see her again, she tells Westward, Everything I do is for you, whether it's to keep you safe, whether it's to inspire you, whether it's your plan. Are you going back to school? Whatever it is, know you have somebody here. If you want me as a mentor, I'll be your mentor. If you just want me as your guardian angel, I'll be your guardian angel. But I'm here, and I don't want you to ever forget that. Oliver's plane ticket purchase wasn't her first big act of monetary kindness. It's not the first time I've done it, she says, and it probably won't be the last. She helped another domestic violence victim who was stranded at the airport once and needed assistance. I got her a bus ticket, she says. She was going to Weld County. I didn't tell my command. Several other officers received CAP awards at the ceremony. Oliver says that people these days often form opinions about police without actually ever seeing the work they do or the acts of kindness in action. At the end of the day, cops are human beings, too. That's it. That's absolutely it, Oliver adds. There are so many people that played a part. Marie Francois, she was a supervisor at TSA. She was so gracious with the young lady. From her to the two paramedics, who were both females, to Detective Cox for being there at the right time, to myself, I have to say, I just love the way all the women came together, like Game of Thrones, and all just stepped up like badasses. Having a support system is something that Oliver has benefited from her entire life, she says, with her family behind her every step of the way, despite a little hesitation at first. My mother, when I became a cop, she was very proud of it, Oliver says. My father, he was a little apprehensive. I remember the first day I was getting dressed. I was living with him while my house was being built, and he walked in. I had my t-shirt on and was putting my vest on, and he said that's when he realized, oh my gosh, this is my daughter. My brother, I have a twin brother, I invited him for a ride-along, and he said, you know, Vic, I know you carry a gun, but if somebody comes at you, I'm your brother. I got to take care of it. Oliver's biggest supporter and protector was her sister, Suzanne Renee, who passed away. But in the same way that she served as a guardian angel for the DV victim, Oliver believes Suzanne was with her those days at the airport, helping her navigate the ordeal. She was there with me, concludes the celebrated DPD officer. She was my guardian angel. Meet Pablo, the Colorado cat running for president by Benjamin Neufeld. 
He's the perfect candidate. Hailing from Durango, Pablo the Cat is tossing a furball into the 2024 presidential ring, declaring that he's deeply concerned for the direction our nation is taking and wants to do something about it as our country's new commander-in-chief. Obviously, the campaign is a joke. Pablo won't actually be on next year's ballot. But it's one that his owner, Liz Glantz, is taking quite seriously. Pablo is a passionate advocate for change and justice, with an unyielding commitment to fighting corporate greed, championing, championing human rights, and advancing health equity and access, Glantz explained in an August 18th press release announcing the feline's candidacy. With a vision of a more inclusive and prosperous America, Pablo is stepping up to lead the charge for transformative progress in the 2024 presidential campaign. Speaking to Westward, Glantz reveals how her plans to have Pablo run for president initially started out as satire before eventually drifting into more serious territory. About a year and a half ago, I had the idea to have my cat run for president as a joke, she says. I like cats. I thought my cat was pretty photogenic. As Glantz began to think more about the logistics of running a presidential campaign, even a fake one, such as setting up a website and social media accounts, making an announcement video, coming up with a platform, etc., she got to thinking, what if this gains traction? What if it takes off? That's when she decided to change course. I want it to have some real causes behind it to bring to light some of the issues that are really pressing these days, compared to some of the squabble that's going on with not as pressing of issues, she says. This, coupled with the fact that Glance could possibly make money off the idea, had the Coloradan cat owner licking her chops. A few years ago, they had Grumpy Cat, and they totally made money off of him and made merchandise, she recalls. So I was like, you know what? I've got student loans to pay. I'm trying to get my piece of the pie, not to be rich, but just to be comfortable. Since creating social media accounts for Pablo on August 18th, Glance has racked up over 300 followers on X, formerly Twitter, and 60 more on Instagram. The press release announcing his run for office ultimately comes with a disclaimer. This campaign and related website is not affiliated with or representative of a real presidential campaign. This campaign, website, and business are purely for commercial purposes. But that's where the presidential phoniness stops. United Today, Stronger Tomorrow, Pablo for President, 2024, reads a campaign sign. In his announcement video, Pablo dons human teeth and speaks to his reporters through a human body adorned with a cat head, telling them, It's time we refocus on what truly matters, each other, our values, and the issues that affect our lives. In this time of division, let us remember that our differences should not tear us apart, but rather build us up. We must move beyond judging one another based on our distinctions and embrace the strength that comes from our diverse perspectives. According to his campaign website, proceeds from all sales go towards supporting Pablo's comfortable existence. Additionally, Glantz writes that Pablo shares a small portion with his two brothers, a cat and a dog, and his human pet mom. 10% of profits are slated to go to nonprofit organizations whose efforts support humans' well-being, climate change solutions, and animals, 
according to the website. For $7.75, online supporters can get themselves a Pablo the Cat campaign sticker. For $33, they can get a whole flag. $2 more will get people a sweatshirt showing Pablo with a, his new human body wearing a suit as he stands atop a flying bald eagle, American flag in one hand and Statue of Liberty torch in the other. Pablo is not the first animal to jokingly run for president, nor is he the first Coloradan. While the Centennial State hasn't ever had anyone actually become commander-in-chief, at least a half a dozen people who were born in Colorado have had their names on the ballot. The list includes former U.S. Senator Gary Hart, late Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, former Governor Richard Dick Lamb, Aurora native and 2004 Democratic nominee John Kerry, former Congressman Tom Tancredo, and Colorado Springs native Scott Walker, who ran as a Republican in 2016 while he was governor of Wisconsin. Earlier this year, Joseph Maldonado, also known as jo Joe Exotic from the Netflix show Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness, claimed that he would be on the Colorado ballot for president in 2024. But state officials later denounced his candidacy, saying Exotic would have to wait until the official 2024 presidential paperwork was fired, filed before coming, becoming a candidate. Also, he's required to be a member of a major political party, which he reportedly is not. Those going for the nation's chief executive spot next year will be clashing with former president and possible jailbird Donald Trump and current POTUS Joe Biden, along with a gaggle of other big names, but no cats so far besides Pablo. In the 2016 election, the campaign for Limberbutt McCubbins, a kitty from Kentucky, grabbed headlines and spurred PolitiFact to look into whether or not an animal would actually be constitutionally allowed to become president. Their finding? Probably not, but there's no explicit rule that says so. What ultimately stopped McCubbins from going all the way was his failure to spend or receive $5,000 in campaign funds, which is a requirement in order to be considered an official candidate by the Federal Elections Commission, the agency says. In Colorado, it's not just cats running for president. Dogs Pirate and Lady ran as write-in candidates in 1984, with disgraced quiz show contestant Stoney Jackson acting as their campaign manager. Jackson came to Denver in 1980 and died in 2002. He spent time in and out of homelessness and, with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union, sued the city to give homeless people the right to vote. Denver settled the case in 1986 and allowed people without an official address to register to vote by designating a shelter, church, or other service agency as their legal residence. Pirate and Lady's four-legged campaign slogan, better for a dog to go to the White House than for the White House to go to the dogs. Canine candidates have actually been a thing here in Colorado. A Bernese mountain dog named Parker currently serves as the honorary mayor of Georgetown. A greater Swiss mountain dog named Piper served as the unofficial mayor of Divide from April 2020 until she was replaced by a donkey named Clyde in 2022. While Pablo does not yet have a running mate, he is set to announce one soon, according to Glantz. I have faith in Pablo, she concludes. 
Live Outdoor Music Returns to Number 38, Ending Licensing Woes, by Katie Cheshire. After a two-year licensing saga, Live Outdoor Music is officially back at number 38, starting today, September 13th. We built that entire venue to celebrate local musicians, to provide a space where locals can see their friends on stage without having to worry about paying for a ticket or buying a cover. But we're excited now to be able to operate in that way says Spencer Franck, one of number 38's owners. Soon after the indoor-outdoor venue opened at 3560 Chestnut Place in 2021, some neighbors complained that music from its stage and audiovisual system could be heard inside their homes late at night. That kicked off a case with the city to determine whether the venue should be able to keep its cabaret license. In June of this year, the neighbors in number 38 finally reached an agreement with the city that aims to prevent those problems while still still giving the music venue the leeway it needs to be successful. It's unfortunate that it's taken this long, but we feel like the implementation we put in place alongside the cooperation with the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses really will allow us to continue to operate in a legal manner, Frank says. According to an official decision from Excise and Licenses Executive Director Molly Dupelchan, number 38 must comply with five conditions to keep its cabaret license in good standing. For starters, it can't remove or modify the several noise mitigation methods it has installed without officially applying for a substantial modification through the city. It must also end all outdoor acoustic entertainment and most outdoor amplified entertainment by 10 p.m., which is when the venue is required to close its garage doors, sealing off the indoor space from the outside. In addition, it can't prop open those exterior doors and must make every effort to ensure that doors are only open when they're being actively used by patrons. Finally, the license conditions specify that all forms of entertainment must comply with the noise ordinance and that number 38 will follow the sound plan it developed while attempting to resolve the case on its license. That plan details the methods that the venue will take to operate under the law while taking nearby residents into consideration. Even after the June ruling, number 38 had to obtain a few additional permits and pass more inspections but now it's ready to welcome performers back to its outdoor stage. We're excited, Frank says. We're celebrating and continue to celebrate respectfully with the city, with our neighbors, and we're looking forward to honoring and promoting many local musicians. Tom Downey, the attorney for the neighbors, is also pretty excited. Number 38 is a wonderful venue, he says. Now that the awkwardness is behind us and the parties have agreed to reasonable restrictions, I'm looking forward to going as a patron rather than as opposing counsel. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.